0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Our text from this morning comes from Luke chapter fourteen, verses twenty-five and thirty-three through thirty-three. If you're following along uh, in the blue Bible there in front of you in the pew in front of you, uh, it's going to be on page eight seventy-four. Luke chapter fourteen. and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Wade. Let's pray and ask God to bless to us the preaching of his word. Almighty God, you uh, you have condescended to us and spoken to us in our language and uh, revealed to us truths that uh, we could not find out on our own. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to understand what your word has to teach. Lord, move within our hearts uh, by your spirit to uh, expose the areas uh, where uh, we are unwilling to pay the cost to follow Jesus and give us strength to walk in faithfulness to him as your redeemed children. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. When I was in high school, I needed some extra cash at one point, and I decided that I would try my hand at sales. And I uh, started selling Cutco knives. How many of you ever bought Cutco knives? Okay. You know how great they are. Well, I didn't do very well at it at all, so I had to end up uh, finding another job that would actually earn me some money. But uh, one of the things I learned when I was selling Cutco knives at door-to-door was uh, that if you ever want to sell anything, especially something like Cutco knives, what you have to do is you have to maximize the benefits and minimize the cost. And so what we would do is I'd go into these houses and you know, I'd cut pennies in half uh, with uh, with the special scissors that they give you and uh, and take the knives and just cut pieces of rope in half just with one swipe and show how you know their, dirt, their dirty old dull knives in their own kitchen couldn't do it. And so I'd do all those uh, great things. And then it, you'd ask for the sale without even mentioning the $800 price tag that came on the, uh, on the big uh, Cadillac set. Without even, you'd, you'd say, hey, would you like to buy these, without even mentioning the cost. And if you bought Cutco knives and if you ever bought a car or anything like that, you know what I'm talking about. The, the car salesman's in your face and he's telling you how great this thing is and, and all the features, all the benefits, and it's everything that you can do to get him to say it costs this much. It's, well, you know, we can wheel and deal and just try to minimize. I don't want you to see the numbers. But uh, Jesus, of course, in this passage, takes a very different tack with the people who are following him. Uh, Luke tells us in this point, uh, by this point at Jesus' ministry in verse 25, he says, Great crowds were accompanying him. Now, you would think that at this point, Jesus would be really excited about all these people who are following him and that he would do everything that he could to kind of maximize the benefits of, of keeping them there and minimizing the cost of what it means to, to really, truly follow him. But as, as we saw, as, as Wade read, it's precisely when his popularity is, is growing among the people in, in Judea that he hammers home these really difficult words about the cost of what it means to follow him. And you see, Jesus doesn't want any of his followers coming to him under any illusion that, that following him means total cost of everything that you have. He doesn't want anybody coming under false pretensions that, that they can have Jesus and have everything else too. He wants them to, be, to make an informed decision if they choose to be his disciple. Uh, So this passage is essentially an exhortation to consider seriously what it means to follow Jesus. What is it going to cost you to follow him? Now, this passage has immediate relevance for any of you who are are not Christians and who are perhaps here considering whether or not Christianity is something that you'd like to, to give your life to, whether or not Christ is someone you would like to follow and uh, you 're weighing that out, and uh, Jesus here gives you a realistic picture of what it looks like to follow it he 's giving you informed con- he wants you to make informed consent to use a legal term but it 's not just to those who are not Christians that uh, this passage is relevant uh, it, it, do- it also has something to say to us who have been following Christ for some time it, because uh, as many of you know, being a disciple of Christ does not The cost of following him is not a paid-up-front kind of cost, is it? It's paid in installments. It's something that you pay throughout your life, and in different phases of your life and different challenges as they come up, uh, the cost changes, doesn't it? And sometimes uh, it gets really expensive to follow him. And so we, too, need a reminder of what it means to follow Jesus. What is it going to cost us? What is it costing us now? and an encouragement to consider that again. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus calls us to carefully consider the cost of Christianity. He calls us to carefully consider the cost of Christianity. And there are three things I want us to look at with respect to the cost. The first is I want us to look at the command. What, what is Jesus actually commanding us to do in these verses? The second thing I want to look at is the cost itself. What, what exactly does Christianity cost? What's the price tag? And, and third and finally, I want to look at the motive for paying the cost. Why would anybody pay this steep cost to follow Christ? So th- that's where we're headed. So first, let's examine the command. What, is, what exactly is Jesus commanding us to do in these verses? Well, what, he, what he's actually commanding us is to consider or deliberate or think carefully about the cost. You see, it's not, it's not essentially a command to pay the cost. It's not a command to follow him, even. The, the, the heart of his command is consider, count, think about it. Where do I get that? Well, uh, get it from these two mini parables that Jesus tells in verses 28 to 32. Uh, in the first of which, he, he asked the disciples what they would do if they wanted to build a tower. Now, they would build a tower maybe in a vineyard to watch out for people who are coming to steal the grapes or to watch out for wild animals, or they could build a tower to store more stuff in it, um, like the guy in, a, in, a, in an earlier parable in Luke, to, to store his grain. But uh, he asked them, what, what would you do if that was what you wanted to do? You wanted to build a tower. And he says, the reasonable thing to do is, you'd first you'd sit down and you'd get out all your resources, your tools and your wood and your concrete, and you'd figure out if you had enough uh, If you had enough in your bag to to do it, do you have enough to to get the job done? And in the second mini parable, he uses the example of a king who's going out to war. And this king is being attacked by another king. We know that because he sends out a delegation and asks for peace at the end. But the king does the same thing as the builder. He says, do I have enough? He goes out to look at his men and he says, do these 10,000 guys, uh, can they do it? against the 20,000 of my enemies. So they, t- they take time to carefully consider what, it, what it's going to cost them. And what, what Jesus is implying here is he says, why would you take so much time to consider the cost of buildings and battles, but not the same amount of time to consider what it costs to follow me? He's trying to show them th- this inconsistency in their life. Well, why does Jesus stress the importance of considering the cost? What, why, what are the consequences if we don't consider the cost of Christianity? Well, the first parable gives us the answer, and that is that if we fail to realistically count the cost, if we fail to realistically think about what it's going to cost us to follow him, then we're not going to make it. We're not going to, we're not going to go the long run. We're not going to make it in the end. You see, when the cost ultimately exceeds... Our expectations of what we thought it was going to cost, we're not going to pay it, Jesus says. Now, In the same way, uh, if we fail to count the cost, not just of buildings or battles, if we, if we fail to count the cost of following Jesus, Jesus is saying, you're not going to make it in the end. If you make a decision to follow me, it's not going to be one that lasts unless you take this step. I'm not saying that Jesus is teaching that that we can fall away, that we can lose our salvation, or that somehow our our, uh, perseverance in the faith depends on how well we consider the cost. But what Jesus is doing is uh, he's saying that one way that God preserves us in the faith, one way that God keeps us here is by challenging us to to consider, to count the cost. So I, I would ask you, have you honestly considered what it costs to follow Jesus? Do you take the same kind of uh, care as you do when you consider all kinds of other things in your life? Whether you can afford to build that new house. Whether you can afford to live on the new salary that's being offered to you. Whether you can uh, afford to have a, have a child. Whether you, whether you should marry this, your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Uh, we, we all put lots of effort and lots of thought into making those decisions. But have you really considered what it costs to follow Jesus? Have you sat down and thought about it carefully. I, w- I want to speak for a minute to the, to the youth. Because I think this passage really has a particular relevance to you. Um, one, of the, one of the great blessings of growing up in the church and growing up in a Christian family is that you uh, have, uh, have many, many blessings. You have Christian parents who are teaching you the word of God and teaching you the faith. You have all kinds of people around you who model for you what it means to follow Christ. But one of the drawbacks of that can be that life in the church can sort of insulate you from some of the costs of following Christ. And there's come, there is a time coming in your life when it is going to get more expensive to follow Jesus. Whether that's when you get to high school, whether that's when you get to college, uh, you're going to be forced to, to pay this cost in a way that maybe you haven't during, during your younger years in the church. And so I would, I would uh, exhort you, and Jesus exhorts you, consider what it's, going to cost, what it's going to cost to follow Jesus in college, in high school, uh, beyond college. What's it going to cost you? Parents, help your kids. Think about that. Help them to consider what that might look like as someone who's been through it and who has perhaps paid the cost or failed to pay the cost when it, when it came due. Talk to them about it. Consider it. Okay, so that's the, that's the command. That's, that's what Jesus is commanding us to do, is to count the cost. But what, what exactly are the costs that Jesus wants us to consider? What exactly does he want us to, What exactly are the costs? Let's look at the cost itself. Jesus gives us three concrete costs in this passage that he sort of tags for us with this one phrase that he uses three times, and that is, he cannot be my disciple. He uses it in verse 26. Verse 27 and verse 33. Three times he he repeats it. First of all, the cost of discipleship is relational. It's relational. Jesus mentions this, uh, as one of my pastors said, he sort of smacks you upside the head with it in verse 26, where he says, "...if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Now, does that sound harsh to you? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own family members, but what exactly does Jesus mean by hate? Well, clearly, he's not commanding us to, to actively have uh, hate towards our family members. Jesus, in, in very clear passages and other parts of his teaching, uh, teaches us to love our enemies. And if we're to love our enemies, then we ought to love our family, Right? even if sometimes they feel like our enemies we ought to we ought to love them uh, jesus says very clearly and uh, he's he's not saying that we have to hate them but what he's saying is that we that we ought to love them less than we love god matthew puts it this way in his gospel sort of a parallel passage he says whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me that's what jesus is saying he's saying that if your love for him ought to be so exclusive so intense and so single-minded that when, when you set it alongside your love for your family members, that the, the latter would look like hate, is what he means. No other person, no matter what the relationship, no matter how close, has, uh, can take the place of the relationship that you have to the Lord Jesus, if you are his disciple. Now, that sounds easy to say. We say that all the time, don't we? No other person can take the place of Christ in my life. But... There are all kinds of subtle ways that we wind up doing this, where we end up loving our father, and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters more than we love Christ. Well, how do we do that? The first way is, d- despite God's uh, clear prohibition against it, uh, many single Christians today uh, choose to date and to marry non-Christians. And when someone in their life comes to them and they and they read to them the Word of God and they say, "This isn't right," what's the response? but I love him, but I love her is the response that typically comes. And what Jesus is saying here is, I know. I know you do. And that's the problem. You love him more than you love me. You love her more than you love me. If you're, if you're faithfully following Christ, that is a cost. That relationship is going to be a cost of following him. How else do we do it? Parents, it's easy to subtly teach our children to love us more than they love God. When we say things like, it makes me so mad when you do that. Or what you did was so disappointing to me, you ought to do better. What are we saying to them? We're saying, you ought to live your life in such a way so as not to make me mad and not to disappoint me. And unless we, unless we orient them vertically in those conversations to, to realize that, that they are not to live for us, they're not to love, love us above everything else, but to love God above everything else, then, then, we, then we are teaching our children, essentially, that uh, we are helping them not to pay this cost, and put it that way. Another subtle way that family can begin to sort of trump our allegiance to Christ is found in the church. And uh, I want to be careful here, but, uh, but I think it's a reality that we need to, that we need to think about. And that is, uh, in our culture, there are many assaults on the family. And we all see it. <clears throat> see it everywhere, in the movies, on, on the radio. There are many assaults on the family. And in, in our zeal to, to protect the family from those assaults in the church, we uh, run the risks at, at times of making the family, making marriage, making children, the, the basis of our unity in the church. In other words, we, we, we say what it means to belong to the church is to have a family. And we talk about family all the time, and we have single people over at our house, and we talk about our kids all the time. And, and um, people who aren't married and who don't have kids f- end up feeling like that marriage and children is a ticket into the in- inner circle of the church. That if I want to really serve, if, if I want to really be a part of the church, then I need to have a husband, I need to have a wife, and I need to have kids. And you see, when that happens, it 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 takes the place of the gospel, which is what unites the church together. And while Jesus nowhere in his ministry uh, says that the relationship with uh, that the family is unimportant, he's always everywhere saying that the, the family is important. His statement here relativizes that importance in light of our relationship to him. He relativizes it. So that's the relational cost. Of following Christ. The, the second cost is a personal cost. cost of discipleship is also personal. Look at verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross in the first century was, of course, the, the Romans' uh, means of execution, it was what they used for capital punishment. And the cross was, uh, was painful, the cross was public. The cross was shameful, and to the Jews especially, the cross was because in Deuteronomy 21, it says that to hang on a tree, to hang on a cross, was a sign that God had cursed you. And so to the Jews, to to pick up a cross would have been a shameful thing. Yet Jesus says the cross is the accessory to the Christian life identifies it as what sums up what the Christian life looks like, what it means to follow him, is to carry a cross. What he's saying is that Jesus' disciples, without exception, all of them, pastors included, are are not to live lives of acquisition, but to live lives of self-denial. We're not to live lives seeking the approval and the accolades of the world, but seeking self-sacrifice, For the sake of other people. Now, we read this and we think immediately, Jesus is calling me to be a martyr, to die for the faith. And I think that's right. I think Jesus is calling his disciples to that. And many of them, for many of them, that was a reality. But what happens when we only see that is that we think, yeah, I'm prepared to die for the Lord. Whenever he gives me the chance to die for him, I will. Yet, in our, in our world, that may, be the, that may be the case for us someday. I hope not. But when we see it exclusively as dying for our faith, we miss all the daily ways that Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and to follow him. What does it mean to bear your own cross? To bear your own cross means to speak up when silence is far more comfortable. To bear your own cross means to, means to be silent when speaking would be more comfortable, when you just have that choice zinger of a comeback that would feel so good to say. To bear your own cross is to be quiet in those moments. To bear your own cross means to talk it out when you'd rather just roll over and go to sleep. To bear your own cross means to give and give and give without any expectation of receiving anything in return. To bear your own cross means to dive in, engage, settle conflicts. When what you want to do, when everything in you is screaming, retreat, get back, don't get involved. To bear your own cross means to dive in and engage in those circumstances. To bear your own cross means to own up to your own sins, to own up to your own failures. As uncomfortable as that is, I know it is, Because it's a daily occurrence. But it means to own up to those things, no matter how uncomfortable they might be. When everything in you is saying, hide it, hide it, don't say anything, just pretend that everything's okay. Ian Duguid, one of my seminary professors, once said, if you are willing to suffer the consequences, obedience to God is always an option. If you are willing to suffer the consequences, obedience to God is always an option. To bear your own cross means to suffer the consequences of obedience to God. So the cost of discipleship is relational. The cost of discipleship is also personal. Thirdly, the cost of discipleship is also total, the total cost. Look in verse 33. He sums up this whole section and he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. A friend of mine from seminary uh, used to tell me the story about some old, uh, uh, the parents of an old girlfriend of his, who called him a Navy SEAL Christian. And what they meant by that was like, well, you're the special forces. I mean, you're the guy who gives it, gives, it all out, gives it all up. You're the one who sacrifices it all. We're kind of enlisted men. We stay on the boat, you're the one who's in the, you know, swimming through the, the, the you know, climbing through the tide and doing the really special things. But Jesus just explodes that that way of thinking, doesn't he? There are, not, there are not two tiers of Christians: the special forces and then the regular infantry. It's everybody who who is called to give up everything for Christ. Now, some have heard this passage to mean, well, if it, with, if I just take this at face value, what that means is I'm going to become a monk. I just need to I need to leave my family, and I just need to sort of go out into the desert and not wear any clothes or anything like that. And uh, people have done that. Uh, built a ta- one guy in church history built a tower, and he lived up there for the rest of his life. But you see, that would be too easy, wouldn't it? Uh, that would be the easy way out, uh, because Jesus is really here aiming at our hearts and saying, the things that you direct with your hands, as Calvin said it, ought not to take any place in your heart. What he's saying is that, that your time, your money, your energy, your house, your family, your health, your body, even the clothes on your back, do not ultimately belong to you, but they belong to Jesus. And at any moment, he could call you to give them up for him. So is, are you paying that cost? Does it, has it cost you anything to be a Christian? Or are there relationships or, or things or um, habits, time, whatever, that, that where you, areas in your life where you've tried to minimize the cost and maximize the benefits? If so, what is it? Is it costing you something? Is it costing you everything you have? We've looked so far, we've, we've looked at the command to consider the cost, to weigh it out, to count it. Secondly, we've seen what that cost is, and we've seen that it's a steep cost. It costs us everything. And now I want us to examine the motive for paying the cost. Why would anyone, why would you pay such a steep cost to follow Jesus? Who in their right mind would do that? Why would anyone willingly renounce everything that he has? Because it's not mine, but it belongs to God. And these are important questions, friends, because as we consider the cost, we will find that we don't have the resources to pay it. We will find that we love our stuff. We love our our lives. We love our family members more than we love Christ. And when we examine ourselves and when we count the cost, we will say, I don't have what it takes to pay that. And then when the moment comes when the payment is due, we need a good answer. We need a good motivation to say, okay, here it is, and pay the cost. But what is that? What is the motivation that we need to pay the cost when the time comes? There are two reasons. The first reason is that the cost is worth paying because of the promise of future reward. The cost is worth paying because of the promise of future reward, the promise of future glory. We have to go outside this passage to get, to get the answer to this question. But again and again, the Scriptures motivate God's people who are paying the cost of following Christ, who are suffering in this world. Uh, they, they motivate them again and again with the, the good news that this world is not all there is, that this world is passing away, that the currency that we are being called to pay to be a disciple of Christ is passing away, that it's no longer good. To suffer with Christ now means to be glorified with Christ later when he returns. Look at the way Romans eight seventeen says it. It says, If we are children of God, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here it is, Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Paul sees this intimate connection with those who suffer with Christ now and those who will be glorified with him later. And the implication is those who don't pay the cost now, those who say, hey, that's too expensive. I'd rather have this world. And Jesus says, you have your reward here. James 1.12 puts it this way. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He will receive the crown of life after he has endured the test. Testing now, in this age, crown of life in the next but that doesn't mean that we just grit our teeth and bear it. I know that's what it sounds like. Boy, I just got to get through this and suffer now, and then I can get my reward later. That's not what the Bible teaches. not what Jesus is saying. Peter reminds us that, uh, that it is a cause for rejoicing to pay the cost. Listen to what he says. He says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There's rejoicing on both sides of the divide. Now in the suffering, there's rejoicing, and then in the glory, there'll be rejoicing. I recently heard a story about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a uh, a Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II. And uh, in June of 1939, Bonhoeffer took a took a teaching position at Union Seminary in New York City because all of his friends had told him, Dietrich, the Nazis have your number. You're at the top of their list, and they're going to kill you. So you need to get out of the country. You need to flee. And so he, he took the advice of his friends, and he went to New York. And one month after he arrived in New York, one month, he wrote this. I have made a mistake in coming to America. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. And he got on a boat that month and he went back to Germany. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I have no business being part of the blessing of post-war Germany, whenever that might come, if I don't first pay the cost with my people. I will have no standing to speak to them. But what Bonhoeffer didn't realize was that those words of his would ring far truer than he would ever realize. In, Bonhoeffer would never see the reconstruction of Germany after the war. Never saw a day of it. In, on April 9th in 1945, nine days before the Nazis surrendered to the Allies, Bonhoeffer was marched by the SS troops uh, naked through the concentration camp in Flossenburg up to the gallows, uh, and he was hanged as a traitor nine days before the Allies uh, liberated Germany. But uh, in his final Sunday sermon, the day before he was executed, Bonhoeffer said to the the small congregation there in the concentration camp, he said, This is the end but for me, the beginning of life. He never saw the reconstruction of Germany after the war. But Bonhoeffer's suffering brought him into something much better. And that is the reconstruction of the entire earth when Christ returns. And that's where he is now. He saw that this world was passing away. And that even if they took his life... He would, the beginning of his life was actually when he died. Friends, this world is coming to an end. And the world beyond it is, is, is far greater than we could ever imagine. So why not pay the cost? Why not pay the bankrupt currency that we've been given in our lives to follow Christ into the world where there will be no suffering, where there will be no cost anymore? So the cost of discipleship is worth paying because of, the, because of the, the bounty that is being given to us in the world to come. But finally, the cost of discipleship is worth paying because the cost paid by you is just a reflection of the cost paid for you. The cost paid by you in this life is merely a, a, a reflection of the cost that Jesus paid for you in his life and his death. Luke reminds us several times throughout this section in his gospel that Jesus is not just teaching and and healing, wandering around aimlessly around Palestine, but he's on a mission. And he's on a mission that ends where? In Jerusalem. And he has already set his face to Jerusalem and is marching there. And he as he's told his disciples already, that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day rise again. Jesus calls us to count the cost of following him because he first counted the cost of what it would, what it would mean for him to come redeem you. Paul tells us in, in Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant for you. Jesus calls us, his disciples, to bear our own cross because he first bore your cross and paid the penalty. Of your death. He humbled himself, Paul goes on, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And while the foolish builder in this parable that he tells was mocked by his friends because he couldn't finish the work that he set out to do, Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, was mocked as well. But he was mocked as he cried out, It is finished. The work that I came to do is done. The cost is paid. Friends, we will only be willing to pay the cost of what it means to follow Christ if we first see that Jesus paid the cost in our place. Our payment of the cost doesn't earn us anything. It doesn't buy us anything. It doesn't make us holier than other people because we are suffering and they're not. But the cost that we have to pay is simply a sign. It's a signpost that points to the person to whom we belong. It shows us and it shows the world that we belong to the suffering and payment-rendering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you paying the cost of following Christ? Are you paying the cost of what it means to follow Him? What cost is God calling you to pay today, this week? Consider what that is and ask God for the strength out of gratitude for what he has paid on your behalf to respond to him and to pay it for his glory. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we give you praise and thanks because you have sent your Son into this world to pay the cost of our redemption. And it is only out of response to that grand payment that you call us now in obedience to you to follow Christ, whatever it may cost us. And so we pray that you would strengthen us to pay that cost. And if there's anyone this morning who is considering whether or not to follow Christ, who does not know him, Lord, convince them that this is a cost worth paying. Convince them that it is worth following Christ, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And may it be to your glory. Amen.
0: pleasing scene is clouded with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light. Oh, come with blissful.